Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. Let's get into the Word this morning. Psalm 82. Psalm 82, I think, is um, an important text for us to consider in light of our topic today, abortion and the Bible. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along. And here, as I read the word of God today, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And may the Lord bless this morning the reading and the preaching of his word. Before we get to the topic of the sermon today, abortion and the Bible, let me give us the context of the words of the psalmist here in Psalm 82. The primary speaker in Psalm 82 is the Lord, the Lord God, who is the ultimate divine authority, who rules and reigns over all. In this psalm, he is calling into question the judgment of judges or princes. In verse 1, the word gods is used. It's used again uh, there in verse 6. But we see the parallel at the end of verse 7. You shall fall like any prince. So in Psalm 82, when the psalmist says that he is in the midst of the gods, it's literally he is in the midst of the judges, the princes, the rulers, the governors of the land. And he is calling them as the divine judge to give account on how they are unjustly judging. They are showing partiality to the wicked. And verses 3 and 4, which are certainly pertinent for our topic today, says that they are expressly denying justice to the weak, to the vulnerable. They are handing them over to the hands of the wicked instead of defending them when they find themselves defenseless. I think those words speak directly to the most innocent among us, those who reside within the womb of their mothers. We must heed the words of verse 4 to rescue them, to deliver them from the great atrocity that is occurring against them. Verse 5 tells us that these judges neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. And certainly I believe that's an apt description of many who give leadership in Uh, a vast array of levels across our country today. Their minds are clouded in darkness. How else could you explain the legality of the taking of innocent life? As a result of that, at the end of verse 5, 
I think it paints for us the understanding of why we are where we are today in our country. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. When judges and rulers and leaders in the land have given themselves over to darkness and wickedness, have legalized and upheld, have codified the taking of the most innocent of life, is it any wonder that the pillars of our culture and our country are shaking all around us today? Absolutely not. In response to that, the Lord in verse Verses 6 and 7 calls them to judgment. You are judges, you are leaders, you are governors, you are gods, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the cry of the psalmist in verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth. I believe that would be an apt prayer for us today for our nation. Oh, we cry for the blessings of God, and certainly we long for God to bless America. But perhaps the more proper prayer for us as the people of God today is arise, O God, and judge this nation, for we have done wicked things in the eyes of a holy God. We have failed to defend the defenseless. We have failed to protect the needy. We have failed to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute Instead, we see unjust judgment and partiality to the wicked. And I believe the atrocity of abortion tells us that ever so clearly. January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court handed down the landmark decision in Roe v. Wade, saying that no state would be able to make laws regulating abortion during the first three months of pregnancy except to provide that they be done by licensed physicians. And since that evil decision, the murder of the most innocent, the murder of children within the womb has never ceased. Let me give you some statistics because perhaps you think that this really isn't that big of a deal. Perhaps you've grown callous to uh, the, the topic of abortion within the church. May the Lord break our hearts again today. Abortion is the leading cause of death in the United States. Now, you will not find it listed upon that if you were to search today in any online search engine because our government does not see it as a cause of death, but it absolutely is. This is the taking of a life and it outpaces all other causes of death among us. And unfortunately and sadly, in many occasions, the lives taken by abortion outnumber collectively the second and third highest causes. Annually, in the years of abortion, that it has been legalized in our country. Listen to this. Taken collectively and on an average, abortion has contributed to more deaths than heart disease and cancer combined in our country. Abortion is the second most common surgical procedure today in the United States. More than 60 million babies have been aborted since the decision was handed down in 1973. One out of every five pregnancies in the United States today ends in abortion. 20% of all women who determine and find out that they are pregnant will end it with abortion. 
Today, in recent years, more than 850,000 abortions take place annually within this country. 850,000 abortions annually in the United States. Since the inception of Roe versus Wade, there have been approximately, that is, if you take all the abortions in those years since its inception, there have been approximately 1.5 million abortions performed annually in this country. Based upon that average, listen to this, one abortion occurs every 20 seconds. That means that every minute that we are sitting here in the sanctuary and every minute of every day, three babies are being killed in the womb. Perhaps you think that this just happens in those faraway places. Perhaps it happens in those regions and geographical locations that are more populous or given over to liberal ideologies and thoughts and a way of life. Not so. Right here in our own state, more than 25,000 abortions take place each and every year. This is a topic that we can't turn a blind eye to. This is a topic that we must hear Scripture speak to, and does Scripture ever speak so clearly about it? Today on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I, I want to share with you this morning 10 biblical arguments against the killing of the unborn. 10 biblical arguments against the killing of the unborn. And make no mistake, that's absolutely what abortion is. It is the taking of innocent life. So let me walk through these with you this morning. Number one, in Scripture, unborn babies are called children. Unborn babies are called children. It's amazing to me that perhaps the most pertinent Scriptures in dealing with the topic of abortion come to us in the most glorious birth that has ever occurred. It's in the Christmas story where we find defense after defense of protecting life within the womb. In Luke chapter 1, Luke records for us the, the encounter that took place with Mary who was with the child that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Christ in her womb. The news and the encounter that she had with Elizabeth who was pregnant with John the Baptist. And in Luke 1, Luke says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that she uh, had, had the Christ child within her, the baby, that is John the Baptist, leaped in the womb of Elizabeth. The baby leaped in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. For behold, she said, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now we'll talk about some other considerations from those verses in a moment, but, but I want you to remember that word baby. Luke here is writing this, and Luke is a medical doctor, a very precise guy, and he's using very precise terms. And here he says, the baby in her womb leapt. The baby in her womb had joy. When we go to Luke chapter 2, Luke records for us the details of, of the very first Christmas night when the Christ child was born. It records for us uh, the angels proclaiming the glory and giving the message to the shepherds. And this is what they told them in Luke 2.12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And then Luke says, the shepherds went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Same word. Same Greek word that he used in Luke 1 to speak of the baby in the womb of Elizabeth. Do you understand what Luke is telling us there? That there is no distinction between the child, whether it is in the womb or it is out of the womb. They are one in the same. They are all children. And we know today that if we were to take a child outside of the womb and snuff its life out, that would be murder. Well, listen to me. It is no distinction uh, within that child if it is in the womb. To take its life is murder as well. All throughout Scripture, the unborn babies are recognized as children. Children. They have life. Therefore, to take that life is a sin before a holy God. Number two, what we see in Scripture is that personal pronouns are used to describe unborn children. Personal pronouns are used to describe unborn children. In Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord there is calling his prophet and affirming the call that he has placed upon his life. And listen to what he told Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The Lord here is telling Jeremiah that before he was ever in the womb, and even when he was in the womb, he was someone. He was a you. He was a person. He possessed all the attributes of personhood. And the arguments of abortion, there are three distinct ways to, to think about the unborn. First, many consider that which was in the womb to be subhuman, that it's simply a mass of cells. That it's simply nothing. And in that understanding, an abortion is an option at any time. It's subhuman. It's, it's not even a person. It's not even a human being. Some argue that that which is in the womb is potentially human. And in that argument, they say that an abortion is sometimes an option, that there is a place somewhere in the pregnancy that, that they can't quite define clearly where vitality comes about and personhood is recognized. And from that point forward, uh, abortion should not be an option considered. But what the Bible teaches us is that that which is in the womb is fully human. That which is taking place there in the womb of that mother it's the creation of a human being, and as such, abortion is not an option. And we know that because of how the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, that he was a person there within the womb. He possessed the personal characteristics of personhood. Argument three, these characteristics of personhood within the womb. Unborn children possess personal characteristics the Bible speaks of them as persons. The Bible describes them doing the things of persons, possessing personal characteristics. Psalm 51.5, David's words, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David was acknowledging that there, even in the womb, even in his conception, he possessed a personal nature, tainted with sin as it was. But again, it speaks to us that what is in the womb is a, a human being. It possesses personal characteristics. When we go back to Luke 1, verse 44, that encounter between Mary and Elizabeth there, 
Elizabeth tells Mary that when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. She didn't say she was leaping. She didn't say that Mary was leaping. She said that John the Baptist in the womb was expressing joy. Now, I imagine today we could collect all the cells that we wanted to, all the goo that we wanted to, all the sticks and all the rocks that we wanted to, and set them all before us and do all that we could to get them to leap for joy. And they're not going to leap for joy because they're not persons. They're not beings. But what Luke tells us is that John the Baptist within the womb of Mary was a human being. He was a person. And as such, he was able to leap for joy at the sound that the Christ had been conceived in the womb of Mary. Unborn children possess personal characteristics that are distinctive to humanness. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Argument four. The Bible makes it clear that the unborn child is a creation of God. The unborn child is a creation of God. Psalm 139, 13. For you, that is the Lord, you formed my inward parts. You, the Lord, knitted me together in my mother's womb. In Job 31, verses uh, 13 through 15, there, uh, the, 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 the Bible has, has Job responding to, to his accusers who are before him. And he says to them, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job had the understanding that, that what was going on in the womb was the very work and creation of God. That God is the almighty knitter. And that in every womb in which a child is conceived, it is God creating a unique creation that only he can perform. You remember when you were growing up and you had a string, maybe on the hem of your shirt or on the sleeve of your shirt, or you had a string that was hanging off some piece of fabric. And I don't know what it is about any child, but they want to grab that string and what they want to do, they just want to pull it. I can still hear my mother, and you can probably hear yours, or maybe your grandmother, don't pull it. Whatever you do, don't pull. And because we didn't listen and we're disobedient children, we pulled it anyway, and you know the thing unravels and the hems come loose. They didn't want you to pull it because they knew if you pulled it, that thread was going to pull loose, and what had been put together would now be undone. Listen to me, that's what happens in abortion. In the womb of that mother, God is knitting together. God is creating a child, a unique child with personhood and humanness. A child that can leap with joy. A child whose, whose, whose body is functioning fully. And in abortion, we are taking that and we are unraveling all that God has done. In taking life, we are infringing upon the work of an almighty God. The Bible makes it plain that what is there in the womb is the creation of God, and we must honor it as such. We must honor it. Argument five. The Bible tells us that the unborn are known intimately and personally by God, just as he would know any other person. They're known intimately and personally by God. I think one of the most encouraging realities of God is that he knows us. 
The Bible tells us that he knows the very number of hairs that are upon our head. He knows us intimately. He knows us in all of our detail. He knows everything that there is to know, and that brings comfort and assurance and confidence to us as we seek to live our lives for him here on this earth. Well, I want you to know that he also knows that about all the children in the womb as well. As surely as he knows you intimately and personally, so he knows them. Psalm 139, verses 15 through 16 There the psalmist declared, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Listen to me. The preciousness of God's thoughts for you did not begin once you were out of the womb. The intimacy that God had for you did not begin when your birthday occurred. The intimacy and the preciousness of God towards you, it took place there even in the secret parts, even as he was weaving you together in the womb of your mother. The unborn are known intimately and personally by God just as he would know any other person. The Bible teaches us this all throughout Scripture. We saw it in the testimony of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. We see it in the realities of Esau and Jacob in Genesis 25, the the life of Samson in Judges 13, even the life of Paul in Galatians 1, even with the Messiah, the promised servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49. Oh, God sets his thoughts and the sum of them and the preciousness of them on the children who were in the womb. Argument six, the life of the unborn is protected by the same punishment for the injury or death of the living adult. The life of the unborn is protected equally, equally. In Exodus 21, 22, the Lord is giving his commands for his people, how they will live in the land that they will possess what will set them apart. And in this verse, he says, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her child, her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine as the woman's husband shall oppose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, harm to the child in the womb, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The Lord seeks to protect the life that is in the womb just as he seeks to protect the life that is outside of the womb. And you want to hear the great irony of our land today? 38 states in our country today have similar laws that would hold one accountable should he harm a child within the womb of a pregnant mother. But yet at the same time, our nation will say, let us violate that womb and take the life that is residing there. To the Lord and his word, protection is given to the unborn. He guards over them. Argument seven. The image of God includes male and female. 
Genesis 1, 27. We, we read that a couple of weeks ago in our Bible reading plan. He said, let us make man in our image, and he created them in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. Human life is valuable, not because of what a person does, the job that they have, the last name that they carry. Human life is valuable because it bears the image of God. It's created in his image and likeness. And that image and likeness in part is revealed to us in maleness and femaleness. Now, we could take a, an exit ramp here and get into a topic that our world is confused on as well. There seems to be an issue in trying to determine are you a boy or are you a girl in our world today. I can tell you it's pretty simple to figure out. And the reality of it is, is that your maleness or your femaleness is not determined at a particular age. It's not determined by some decision that you or even parents may make for you. No, your maleness and femaleness is determined at the moment of your conception. At that moment, God has created you as a male or as a female, but whichever one you may be today, in that you bear the image and likeness of God. Male and female, he created them in his image and likeness. And if that is determined at the moment of conception, here's what that means. That at that moment, the image of God is impressed upon that child in the womb. Therefore, simply because it is just two cells at that moment, does not mean that it can be done away with. Just because it's, it's a, a, a being, a human that's too small to be seen, with some of the most advanced technology that we have, doesn't mean that it can be done away with. No, it bears the image of God. Therefore, we defend it, we honor it, we uphold it. The image of God includes male and female, and in the moment of conception, that is determined. Argument eight. The Bible gives us repeated bans against shedding innocent blood. The Bible gives us repeated bans against shedding innocent blood. Jeremiah 22.3 Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In the act of abortion, we are shedding innocent blood. The Bible teaches us over and over again in the Old Testament, life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. So to shed blood is to take life. And to shed innocent blood is to take innocent life. And what, what more innocent life could there be than a child that is in the womb of its mother yet... 850,000 times a year, three times every minute, the blood of the most innocent among us is being shed. In Psalm 106, 38, the psalmist is speaking out against the taking of innocent life. He, he's, he's speaking out against, against the act of not protecting and defending the innocent. And listen to what he says, Psalm 106, 38. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Listen to me. 
in the act of abortion, we're not necessarily sacrificing idols or sacrificing uh, our children to the idols of Canaan, but we are sacrificing them to idols, idols of our own making, idols of having a comfortable life, a pleasurable life, idols of selfishness. Children are aborted because they'll be a hindrance upon the relationship, upon the life. They'll prohibit reaching goals that we have said, oh, make no mistake, that in the act of abortion, we are offering up sacrifices of our sons and our daughters to the idols of our own making. It's what's taking place. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He gives us one more line in that verse. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Listen to this. And the land was polluted with blood. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in today. Could it be that our land is polluted with the blood of 60 million plus babies that have been aborted? Could it be that the blood of these babies, the the innocent blood of these babies, is as the blood of Abel that is crying out to the Lord? I think it is. God is not going to wink at this. God is not going to turn away from this. He's a holy and a just and a righteous God. In Psalm 82, he was the God who called to give justice to the weak, to rescue them from the wicked. But instead of rescuing them, we have handed them over again and again and again to the most wicked of hands. The Bible tells us to protect innocent blood. Argument nine. The Bible tells us it is the right of God, the maker and creator, to give and take life. It's the right of God, the maker and creator, to give and take life. In Job 1, we we read it recently in our our F260 Bible reading plan. In that day of destruction that came upon him and his family, Job proclaimed, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was declaring it was the Lord's prerogative to give and to take away. He is the creator, he is the maker, and only he can give and take life. This is the prohibition that's handed down in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. The taking of life, innocent life, belongs to God, to him alone. So many times people in arguing for abortion, they want to appeal to the circumstances of that situation. Well, you, you don't know the poverty that this child will have to grow up in. You don't understand the circumstances that they are going to have to face. You don't understand that, that they may have a disability or even a deformity that they're going to have to live with and the cruelty that they're going to have to face and all of these things as they go through life. Listen to me today. We are not to play God. We're to obey God. God is the one who gives and takes life and creates it as he sees fit. We're not to to play God. We are to obey God. We're not to take his role, to sit upon his throne and to snuff out life. That is his prerogative. And he is creating every life exactly as he desires for it to be. And furthermore, when we simply want to project ahead upon the circumstances and potential suffering that an individual may have to go through in life, that fails to recognize the sufficiency of the grace of God. 
that fails to understand that God may have a plan that even in the midst of that suffering that that child will have to endure, his glory can be seen brightly shining. Again, we must not play God, we must obey God. God has the prerogative of giving and taking life. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Number 10. What does the Bible say to us in regards to abortion? In the words of a song that we probably could all sing today, the Bible teaches us that Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves the little children. In Luke 18, Jesus is once again being thronged by the crowds. And particularly, the little ones are trying to get to him, and the apostles are trying to shoo them away. That culture was distinctly different than our day in their view and upholding of children. They didn't want the children harassing Jesus, they didn't want them getting near and aggravating or irritating. And so they were keeping them from him. But in Luke 18, 16, Luke tells us that Jesus called out to them and he said, let the children come to me. Jesus wanted the children there with him. Do not hinder them. He loved the children. And he went on to say, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Oh, Jesus wanted the children near him. He wanted them close by. He he wanted to speak to them and love them. But Jesus also understood that in the lives of these little ones and their displays of faith and their leaning upon others to make sure that their needs would be met, Jesus tells us, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That in the lives of these little ones, we get an example, we get a witness, we get a display, we get a model of what it looks to live a life dependent upon God, to trust in Him, to be people of the kingdom of God. And yet our nation says, we'll take 60 million of those and we'll take life from them. We'll untangle what God has made. So, how do we respond? the sinful act of abortion. Certainly we can understand all of the arguments of Scripture. We can understand today why abortion is sinful, why it's evil, why it's wrong. And I believe all of you in here today probably understand that. But what do we do? Let me give you three ways to respond. Number one, speak up against this evil. Speak up. We cannot be silent. We must speak up. We must, we must let our leaders know. We must compel them. We must bombard them. We must call out to them. Change this law. Protect the most innocent among us. Speak up against the evil of abortion. Don't let your voice be silent. For some of us, myself included, that means we must repent. We must repent of, of not speaking up, of not calling out this evil, of not taking this stand in accordance to Scripture. But speak up. One of the best ways that you can speak is when you go to the ballot box. And I know we just went through an election cycle, and the last thing we want to think about are elections. 
But in the sovereignty of God, the government that he has placed over us gives us the opportunity to make our desires and wishes known of the leaders who will represent us and govern our land. And in doing so, we need to vote upon the conviction of Scripture. And I'll just be blunt with you today. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm not trying to upset anyone. I'm not trying to call anybody out. I don't care what your political affiliation is. But I want you to know for me today, as your pastor, I'm a single voter issue. that I will cast my ballot first and foremost determined by what you believe about abortion. Because here's, here's the understanding in that. The most foundational thing to all of, all of our country is life itself. And if you're telling me you're going to go and lead our country to not protect the most defenseless among us, the most vulnerable among us, the most needy among us, If you're not going to defend those who don't have a voice yet to speak for themselves, if you're willing to let their lives be taken from them, where will you stop? And what good is justice, social or otherwise, if you're not giving justice to those within the womb? It's foundational. So hear me today. You go by the conviction of your own heart and the leading of the Spirit in your life, but I'm telling you today, this man, this pastor, this preacher is a single-issue voter. You let me know where you stand on abortion and I'll let you know whether or not my vote may go your way. But speak up. Use your voice. Cast your votes. Number two, how do you respond? Support other options. Support other options. What I mean by that is support those sinners like the Paulding Pregnancy Services, where they provide counsel, where they give support for those who are considering having an abortion. Give your resources. Give your time. Come alongside them in prayer. Support them in the work that they're doing. They're making a difference. Support the cause of adoption. It frustrates me to no end, to absolutely no end at the cost disparity between having an abortion in our country and securing an adoption for a child. It is appalling. It is sickening to think for how little you can have an abortion accomplished for and the price that you must pay if you'd want to bring a child into your home. But even still, Let us support the cause of adoption. Let us look for alternatives. Let us support those who are going through the process of adoption. Support your church's children's ministry. One of the best ways to to speak out against abortion is to be somebody that loves children. Love children. Love them in your church. Thank the Lord for the little ones that he has given us here at Poplar Springs. Give your time and give your treasures and and give your talents to serving the least of those who are among us. Love them in your church. And I'll say this here as well. I've said it before, and I'll, I'll say it again this morning. We need to have children. We need to have children. I'm thankful for the little ones that God's given us here at Poplar Springs. I get excited every time I hear there's another child coming. But having children is a tremendous blessing from the Lord. They're a gift that God has given us here. They're a gift to you as parents and to your families. Listen, I know all the work that they are. I know all the hassle that they are. I've got four of them sitting right here. I know 
But I love them with all of my heart, and each one of those are precious to me, and they're a precious gift that God has given to me. And listen, we live in a culture and a society today that says we don't want, want anything to do with kids anymore. That's why we kill them in the womb. Let us be a people who walk differently. Let us be a people who show it differently that says, no, we love kids. They're a gift from God. And then finally, number three, how do we respond to abortion? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. In Psalm 82, verse 5, the psalmist said that those who are bringing this to pass, this injustice in their land, this failure to look out for the needy, they're walking about in darkness. Walking about in darkness. The only thing that can overcome the darkness is the light. We need to share the gospel. We need to see hearts transformed. Ultimately, what we're seeing on display is a heart issue. And the only thing that can change the heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to share the gospel. We need to pray the gospel would reach our leaders in our country, in Washington, D.C., that it would reach the leaders here in our state, here in our community. We need to pray that the gospel will reach those who operate in these facilities where abortions are taking place, the doctors who perform them. We need to pray that the gospel will get to their hearts and change their lives. And we need to share the gospel today with those who are bearing the guilt of having an abortion. I don't back up this morning, and what Scripture makes so plain is that abortion is a wicked and vile sin. It is the taking of life. It is murder in the womb. But I want you to know today that if you have had an abortion, or someone in your family has had an abortion, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is clear where sin did abound, the grace of God much more abounds. And the guilt that maybe you bear from that act that, com- that was committed in your life, Christ can take that away from you today. And Christ can take that and make it work out for, his, for your good and for his glory. It comes through the gospel. And so I implore you today, come to Christ. Come to Jesus today and give your heart and your life to him in repentance and faith. And you'll discover that in no way will he turn you away. In no way will he cast you out. Share the gospel. I pray today that the words of Psalm 82 on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, that they'll burn their way into our hearts. That we hear the the very word of the Lord say, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. And deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let's pray.